Okay, so I have this friend, right? Yeah, a friend. And that friend has, or, well, we had a dealer. He had a weed guy. He'd call the dealer and he'd pick up from him every couple of weeks. And over the years, this is kind of what you did. I mean, even if you don't know it, I'm sure that many of your friends have their own grassroots hookup. Or at least they used to. You see, because in October of 2018, the Canadian government, after years of 420 demonstrations and lobbying and calls for decriminalization, became the second country in the world to legalize recreational cannabis. And that just happened to be around the time that my friend and his wife had a baby. Yeah, so he wasn't interested in waking up overtired with crumbs in his bed, so he just kind of let things slide with his local supplier. Well, within a month, he received this really strange voicemail. It was from a woman who he had never heard from before. Hi, friend of Ron. This is Kathy, and I'm Frank's assistant. And Frank hasn't seen you in a long time. And Frank just, you know, wanted you to know that there are some bundling specials and promotions available and that if you wanted to stop by, you could partake in the, in the promotions. End of message. Okay, so first of all, his weed guy has a personal assistant? What, like a virtual EA? And... He's now calling all of the customers to offer them discounts and entice them with new and interesting strains? I mean, no one told us legalization would be awkward. And it's funny, our illegal weed suppliers have never really needed to be convenient or even price competitive. And don't get me wrong, there's always been some rivalry between local sellers, but there's never been competition like this. See, while the government wasn't able to stop them, it looks like they will eventually beat them. Many provincial pot shops are still working out the kinks when it comes to supply and demand, so their presence is a threat. But this illegal economy has thrived for decades. Look, cannabis, weed, marijuana, dope, green, it's been around for a long time. It's been smoked in a movie, sung about in nearly every genre of music, and represented through societal touchstones like hippies. Whether you've loved it, hated, or smoked but didn't inhale, its place in the culture has been hard to ignore. And all the while, weed has, for as long as I can remember anyhow, been strictly regulated and stigmatized by anti-drug politicians and policies. Most famously, of course, as part of the Reagan era's war on drugs and infamous Just Say No campaign. You know, I've seen some people who smoke marijuana, and they seem to lose pride in their appearance. I'm Michael Jordan. They lose their Don't do drugs. If you're doing it, stop it. Get some help. McDonald's wants you to give yourself a chance. So it's been there, and mostly it's been there illegally, that is until Canada legalized the new recreational cannabis regime will officially come into force on October 17th of this year. Suddenly, a whole new market opened up, or at least a formal version of it did. And I do mean suddenly, certainly for a government. The announcement of legalization to actual legalization only took around a year. But this was a rare kind of business disruption. Not one, you know, brought about by plucky upstarts or tech innovators. 
but by legislation, by changing the rules altogether. And while everyone and their dog has rushed to get into the cannabis marketplace, a very interesting thing has had to happen. The marketing, the branding, and the language around weed needed to change. After decades of lumping weed in with fatal, highly addictive substances, the government, the suits, and the ad guys had to work to reverse and rebrand the public perception of cannabis that they'd worked so hard to maintain. They had to take it from the cultural corner it had been backed into, you know, Pineapple Express, skull-shaped bong imagery and Grateful Dead CDs, to what I call the Volvo model. Mainstream, respectable, you know, bougie. And there are a lot of implications around this shift. I mean, how does a government shape the moral perception of a previously illegal substance, and why does it actually change? I mean, who gets to make money in this new market, and, and who gets left behind? And on that business tip, how do companies innovate inside a forced disruption to set themselves apart in the market? Whew. There is a lot going on here. It's been a year since recreational weed was legalized here in Canada. And after loads of international coverage, celebrations, and dozens of startup announcements, what's actually changed? And for who exactly? I'm your host, Ron Tite, and this is The Coup. For as long as I can remember, we were sold the message that drugs are bad. But recent peer-reviewed research has found that, well, a lot of the fear and serious health concern around cannabis has been greatly drummed up. Yes, recreational use can affect mental health, and smoking it, similar to tobacco, can lead to lung damage too. But what we were initially sold was a little ridiculous. In fact, more and more studies are pointing to alcohol as a leading risk factor in death between those aged 15 to 49, and that the more you drink, the higher the risk of death and even cancer. Cheers to that! Uh, no. But the research did not find the same to be true of cannabis. Nope. It concluded that moderate cannabis use has little to no link to increased risks of cancer, death, overdose, or leads to inciting violence in the way it's been confirmed that alcohol does. But that's all fairly new information, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. We all grew up being told that doing drugs would straight up ruin our lives. That was the ubiquitous message of those 80s dare campaigns. Crack, heroin, and weed were all equally capable of turning our brains into that same sunny side up egg of cognitive mush. This is your brain. This is drugs. This is your brain on drugs. And given the consequences this finger wagging came with, it makes sense that it would take a rather huge effort to counter that messaging in time to open up the government-run weed shop, right? Yeah? Who's with me? 
So first of all, what kind of effect did that just say no to drugs message have on all of us exactly? So my name is Daniel Baer, and I'm a professor of criminal justice at Humber College. And my area of research is drugs policy, community policing, harm reduction, a mix of all of those, really. Individuals, even in my own family, you know, I've been working in drugs policy for a long time, and I still have conversations with some, thankfully not all of my family, who are say, listen, I don't get it. This doesn't seem right. It seems harmful. And I think part of the problem is that we we were really good at marketing this stuff as harmful. The, you know, this is your brain on drugs. You know, in the 80s, Pee Wee Herman and Clint Eastwood did spots about how crack can kill you. I mean, this has been a really effective long-term approach. And I think one of the things we have to realize, and we can maybe expand on this later, but this is the first step in what is a long development of a new social policy. If you think back to when alcohol uh, prohibition ended in Canada, you couldn't go to the LCBO and walk the aisles and you know put stuff in a cart. There was a permitting process and you know stamps had to be acquired and everything. And then you went up to a counter and they went in the back room and brought you out this thing out and then you had a limited amount you could get. That was the first step. And we haven't seen that in decades now. I think if cannabis, there is a lot of stuff that has happened very quickly, especially in Ontario, where they changed from the public to private model, literally almost at the last minute. And so I think it'll take time for old biases and old stigmas to go away, not because the people that hold those are bad. It's because they've grown up and and seen that this is the, the message in society. This is the order. Um, and I think it will change and develop over time. And how that affects usage rates and things like that will be really interesting. Okay, Daniel, but to go back just one step further in the name of context, what was the motivation for marketing them this way? What I think the war on drugs has done since Richard Nixon launched it in the early 1970s, it's really made it about a criminal justice issue. And so the drug war has been used to create what Niels Christie called good enemies. We need people that we can turn to and we can stigmatize and we can use to define the moral boundaries of our society. And cannabis has been used for that for 50 years now. And the problem with that is that it helps keep order and power for the majority of people, but it stigmatizes and criminalizes a vast swath of individuals. Overwhelmingly, it's racialized in how it's deployed and disproportionate. And so what you end up with is a normalization of the idea that a criminal justice response is appropriate to what is in harmful situations, a healthcare issue, and in most situations, a relatively benign choice about how individuals choose to intoxicate themselves. Right. And we choose to intoxicate ourselves all the time, whether that's spinning in an office chair until we're dizzy, whether it's having uh, a toke on a cigarette that is a central nervous system stimulant with nicotine, or alcohol or cannabis. Right. And so we've we've created a normalization of stigma around a particular group in order to control and um, maintain sort of an, uh, a strength in the power structures. And that's problematic for the harm that it causes to individuals for a relatively harmless drug. To maintain strength in the power structures. And he's not overstating that. A couple of years ago, former Nixon domestic policy chief John Ehrlichman came right out and said it. Quote, the Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people, end quote. That's what he told Harper's Magazine in 2016. 
Continuing, he said, quote, we knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We can arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. End quote. Wow. And Canada is by no means innocent in this. We have laws going back to the way we stigmatize Chinese workers at the turn of the 20th century with the opium laws. This is a classic tried and true method. You find the outlying group, and as a Jewish person, you know, this is 3,000 years of history for us. Yeah. But you find the outlying group that you can other, and you make them an other for their sexuality, for their drug use, for their religion, whatever it might be. Drugs has happened to be the dominant um, although I'm sure plenty of people would argue this, but one of the dominant methods of othering and, and breaking apart the unification of societies in order to strengthen parts of it. So then did Canada decide to legalize cannabis in an effort to close the gap on that sense of othering? Mm, not exactly. If we look since the late 1970s, the cannabis usage rate amongst uh, all adults over the age of 15 has remained relatively stable in Canada at north of 10%, and now we're at about closer to 15, uh, but it's generally stayed between sort of 10 and 13%. We're one of the highest consuming countries in the world, and typically it's younger people that are using. What we're seeing in Canada, I think, is that the age of use is continuing on later. So it used to be very typically that use would curtail dramatically after about 24 or 25. Now we're starting to see the 45 to 65 crowd using at higher rates than ever before. And I don't think that it's necessarily that the population of users grew so much. I think it's the absurdity of the prohibition became so blatantly obvious and that its absurdity actually undermined the authority of the government. That if you have laws that are obviously absurd, obviously biased and obviously not working, I mean, the fact that you can get cannabis pretty much anywhere, it undermines all of the other more serious laws. And that is why I think legalization became much more tenable as a political position because people went, this probably won't change that much. This is, this is gonna happen. And when we look at the legalization process, it hasn't been a liberalization necessarily. It has been an increase in regulation. And I think that's part of the underlying message that has created a lot of tension with legalization is that this isn't about making pot accessible. This isn't about saying cannabis is okay. This is about the government finally saying we need to end prohibition because we're spending a lot of time. We're arresting between 48 and 50,000 Canadians a year, 80% of that number for possession alone. And it's farcical. And if, and if this undermines people's trust and confidence in government, then we're doing a lot more harm than good. Okay, so Justin Trudeau legalized it. He told us, he was adamant that it was the right thing to do. And many Canadians agreed with him, including me. But when he was interviewed by Vice a while ago, reporter Manisha Krishnan asked him if he'd celebrate Legalization Day by smoking weed. No. And then realizing this was Vice and that he should probably at least attempt to be cool, he added that he'd instead celebrate with... <sighs> I'm a... <laughs> Go more for of it? A, a, beer, a beer and a, and a bourbon kind of guy. I'm a little more on the Jack Daniels. Which, uh, first of all, I thought was a little bit of a lame answer. Yeah, that's Manisha. And shying away from taking a personal stance to normalize cannabis, she says, 
Trudeau is missing a golden opportunity. Culturally, he's definitely, he's almost kind of distanced himself from language or messaging that's like pro-weed because it's stupid to have banned weed. And it's more, he's, all of his messaging is about kids and like stomping out criminal organizations, which I think is a little bit unfortunate because I think, you know, he could go a long ways in terms of reducing the stigma but he never really talks about the positive reasons for legalizing weed, except for in the sense of like keeping it away from kids and and the black market. If you want a truly effective rebrand, those on top also have to work to alter how those who consume cannabis are viewed. I don't think that it's fair that so many uh, people who consume weed have sort of been tarred with this stigma of, oh, they're like a couch potato or they're, you know, a loser or what have you. Um, and even on the medical side of things, like there's a dearth of research into medical cannabis. And part of it is because people just don't really believe that it has these medical benefits. And we don't have, we've never had the money to kind of fund that research because it's been an illicit substance, right? right. So government will maybe look into the negative impacts of it, but they're not going to fund a study on the medical benefits of it. Right. So I think that in that sense, this rebrand has been good in in terms of getting people taken more seriously and getting the substance itself taken more seriously. But um, you do get into sort of, you know, respectability politics and class politics because a lot of the people who were targeted by prohibition, you know, um, are people of color or people who are marginalized they're not necessarily cashing in on this market. If you look at the people who are the heads of these LPs, it's mostly white men. A lot of them former cops or former politicians who enforce prohibition. Um, So there is a bit of a winners and losers aspect to this where you kind of question like, who is this actually benefiting? And is this fair? Because a lot of the people who have been pushing for this for decades, you know, maybe won't even be able to cash in or to enter the league. Hmm. market. And when those in power, and often in this case, old white people in suits, saw a profit to be made, well, would you look at that? New rules were trumped up. If there wasn't this huge financial gain to be had, I don't really think that we would be talking about cannabis in the same way. Right. You know, it's projected to be um, upwards of a $6 billion industry within a few years. So I think that the government is certainly going to benefit from that. But so are a lot of these um, corporate weed people who really had nothing to do with the push to make it legal. Yeah, yeah. You know, they're kind of swooping in now. Typical brands would look at what we call segmentation analysis, as in what are all the different segments of the population who could consume your product? And for cannabis, there's an obvious segment, you know, the traditional 420 crowd. People who've been collecting colorful glass skull bongs and seen out celebrating every April 20th, draped in custom Canadian weed flags. Look, they're a very well-established group. But what new consumer segments have and will come to life? I think that there's a few different segments um, in terms of the consumer, but also in terms of like on this scale of like going from black market to fully legalized. So I think there are the kind of the diehard activists who will just never be happy with this legislation. And they're always going to say that this is just another form of prohibition because there's too many rules and they basically just want like 
it to just sort of almost be like unregulated to a certain degree. Um, and then I think that you're going to see kind of your more yuppie downtown Toronto type crowd for whom there are already companies that sort of cater to that more um, bougie, like upscale experience, if you will. Um those like 3D printout bongs that just look like a weird like geometric shape. Like it's not like your tie-dye glass, you know what I mean? Like there's there's companies that kind of cater to that. I think that you're gonna see, um, to be honest, a lot of older people, Mm -hmm. boomers, um, and even seniors kind of getting into cannabis the more research comes out about what the benefits are. I mean, I've talked to a lot of people who've never smoked weed before, but now they're using like CBD oil for certain medical treatments. And I think by legalizing weed, especially for a crowd like that, you're destigmatizing it for them so that they might want to sort of experiment with it, you know, medically, recreationally, maybe a little bit of both. I think there's, I think there's going to be the, um, so the Volvo crowd is going to be, it's the downtown person who's like, yeah, yeah. Who's sophisticated, who's almost a connoisseur. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then there's the uh, bachelorette party. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, basic. Like, oh, shit! <laughs> you know, like, yeah. Yeah. There's like the, there's probably like a, a market for like, the basics, if you will, who will just like, they don't really care. They just want to get high. They're happy going to, you know, provincial weed store and buying whatever and Instagramming it, you know, for kicks. It's it's kiwi flavor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. I think there'll be a lot of that too. And now we've seen all that hoopla and more. At the end of 2018, government-run pot shops opened up across the country, with the exception of our home province of Ontario, which only offered legal weed through an online store for the first six months, delivering cannabis at a snail pace. Is it here yet? A handful of independent brick-and-mortar businesses were welcomed beginning in April, with just a fraction of retailers who applied receiving licenses to sell and open up shops. The provincial government doesn't have plans at the moment to open any of its own storefronts and instead has continued to monopolize legal online sales. Aside from the potential fear of ushering in competition and while the government figures out their own systems, all of this has also been stalled because Canada, well, Canada ran out of weed just weeks after legalizing it. In an interview with the Canadian press last December, Trudeau predicted the problem would be resolved in, quote, the coming months and perhaps the coming year. And this past June, the publication also reported that Ontario's cannabis store had received over 2,400 complaints due to delays and delivery problems. And according to the Ombudsman's annual report, they had to establish a team to handle them all. Despite shortages and complaints, the province has announced plans to welcome 50 new independent shops this fall. So, yeah, the actual distributing and selling part hasn't exactly been cool. But what about the social one? When Prohibition ended and booze entered mainstream, it only took a few decades to get really cheesy. You know, one tequila, two tequila, three tequila floor. People declaring their love for a particular drink as if it were a significant marker for their identity or personality. Ugh, all that shit. Lifestyles that accompanied booze going mainstream are varied, to be sure. But one of those variations happens to be extreme uncoolness. So is weed not going to be cool anymore? 
you know, you talked about the 3D bong before, and I was like, the reason that I, I really like weed, but I hated weed culture. Right. Because like I don't want a skull bong in my house. Like, yeah. I just, I just don't. I yeah. don't want. I don't need any of that. Like the whole. Yeah. The the design of everything was horrible. Yeah. And then we're gonna <laughs> and then we're gonna get into like okay now it's gonna hit a point where it's like oh no this is good right this is sophisticated yeah and that's gonna last for two seconds and then next thing you know we're gonna have the beach towel and there's gonna be lame puns and 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 do, like do you think the the true culture is going to be sacrificed like are we now mm. we're going to be getting like really someone that has owns a chocolate shop is going to is now <laughs> making a bad pun about rolling a joint for a... i mean it was the weed company who made that pun but oh, okay um no i know what you're saying it's kind of like is weed not cool anymore because you know canada the most boring country in the world is legalizing it and does that take away from <laughs> the fun of it yeah i think to a certain degree that's probably true um but i mean i think there's still gonna be a place for like the snoop dogs of the world and like those weed companies yeah yeah, yeah. um yeah. but there will also be a huge market for yeah people who just want like a stainless steel bong or yeah. or um you know, like there's like high end chefs who are doing stuff with like infused meals and stuff like that. So maybe instead of just having like a dinner party where you serve wine, like maybe you have like a cannabis themed dinner party. Right, like I think right. there's a lot of ways that you can, places that you can go that that are cool. Like it's like that stereotypical stoner culture. I think there's, you know, a strain of it that will uh, continue to live on. But I think there's so many other cool avenues that could be explored that we haven't really had a chance to explore because it's been, you know, a banned substance for a hundred years. Yeah, it's I almost, it's like, I want to just skip the next five years. Yeah. And like, <laughs> can we just get to the point where we normalize it and we don't have to like, have your aunt coming by and going, <laughs> I tried a brownie, I, you know, and you're like, oh, great, thank you, that's amazing. Um, to the yeah. point, and, and, but I do, I, I, I mean, you know, that notion of exploring, there's so much to explore. Yeah. Every possible angle of like the, yeah, I want to eat a cannabis-infused meal just for no other reason than I want to explore that. Yeah, and like if you think about, like, you know, for cannabis users, it's the experience side of it has always been pretty whatever. It's like you just buy a bag of weed and that's it, and you roll a joint. And so now there's just so many other places that you can go with that. Yeah. Opportunities for entrepreneurs. Cannabis tourism. During the booze prohibition here in Ontario, Detroiters used to come through Windsor on the weekend to hit our bars when there weren't any at home. And in BC, where the cottage industry and grain market has been alive and thriving for decades, BC Bud became infamous across the country and the border. So are we going to see a similar influx for legal cannabis? Manisha thinks absolutely. I mean, if you think about like how many people would go to a place like Amsterdam just because of the weed culture. I mean, when I was 18, I, that's all I wanted to do. Um, and so I think that there's huge opportunities. I think in Ontario specifically, because we don't we're not bordered by any states that have legal weed. Um, and so I think there is an opportunity to kind of get like young Americans or Americans interested in weed to come here. The problem is the province's rules right now are so strict. Um, the lounges and stuff like that are not technically legal here. Right. So I think there is a lot of room for improvement if they relax those rules. Yeah. Right now, someone is looking to license the Bulldog Cafe name <laughs> for Canada. Like that's 
That's a no-brainer. So there's lots of stuff. Like in Colorado, they have like, you know how people have party limos? There's like weed versions of that. Hmm. There's like weed wedding planners. There's spas. Oh, wow. Like there's so much that you can do with it. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, so let's all quit our jobs. <laughs> yes, seriously. <laughs> Now, there are still tons of rules in place when it comes to how cannabis can be sold and consumed in Canada. How Canadian. Across the country, there are still just a handful of businesses you can legally buy from, while lighting up in public is only allowed in about half of the country. And you can still get arrested for having too much weed. Yeah, the possession limit for recreational cannabis in a public space, 30 grams of dried cannabis. Or if you're caught with illicit cannabis, Ah, that'll earn you a fine of up to 100 grand. Or, if you get really lucky, a year in jail. So, across the country, while some provinces continue to slowly allow more retailers to enter the market through licensed lotteries, what are all these companies that prematurely popped up in the past couple of years, what are they doing? Most of them can't sell any iteration of cannabis yet. Well, most seem to be waiting it out and continuing to sell merch and paraphernalia until they hopefully, eventually, fingers crossed, get tapped to sell. But not everyone's waiting. Here in Toronto, one dispensary has become notorious for its open defiance. It's been a consistent back-and-forth battle. Officers shut down the pot shops, lay provincial charges, and change the locks. But the very next day, these illegal businesses are back in operation. A grey steel door blocks the entrance to this illegal pot dispensary called Cafe on Fort York. I feel like until uh, the need for Bud can be met in an efficient manner, I think that you know, these guys to kind of just help in the community. For a third day a in a row, this popular city place pot shop, uh, illegal pot shop behind me, uh, has been shut down by Cafe, police. Cafe, with three locations around the city, continue to sell without a license. But maybe to everyone's surprise, one of their locations received a license to sell through the province's August lottery. But the rest of these businesses aren't taking the same risk. Instead, they're continuing to stand by patiently and build their networks. Kirsten Gauthier, a veteran entrepreneur, is the chief marketing officer of 48 North, a company focused on the health and wellness angle of cannabis and targeted mostly towards women. She talks about the uneasy alliance cannabis startups and the government have had with each other and how, despite the initial disruption in the cannabis space started by government legislation, startups still need to juggle these sorts of micro workarounds and tiny disruptions inside of that forced disruption. It's... Disruption Inception. It's like this very different type of energy that I've ever experienced in business before. You obviously have your bigger risk takers and than, than others in the industry, and those are usually the ones who have more money, who can take the hits if they need to. But, I mean, everyone really is. I mean, if I think about the industry like four years ago when I was thinking about getting into it, like I had other friends in, in it, and it was a real concern about like how is this going to affect my career? Like... Am I going to be blacklisted? Like, can I really do this? And um, so those people were really sort of disrupting the idea of work and risk-taking at that point to me anyway, because, you know, usually people are like, I'm quitting my job and I'm going to start a business or I'm going to do that. But this was like a massive career risk. Um, 
even thinking about when I first started last year, you know, I'm getting my feet wet and trying to understand what was important. Of course, cannabis was not legal. We did not have a date. We didn't really know when it was going to happen. Um, so people were still, you know, it was speculative. It's like, okay, it'll be the medical system. And we were learning more and more. It's very difficult to acquire patients. It was very expensive. Really, are we going to be able to make money in the medical market? Um, and, you know, everyone was really, really focused on cultivation, cultivation, like who's got the biggest farm I'm going to like. And so if you weren't playing there, then you weren't really interesting. So you had to find different ways to disrupt that narrative, to be able to be relevant, to then switch the conversation to something else. So with 48 North, when I first started, we were Delshin Therapeutics, which was just like a a licensed producer of cannabis. Um, We didn't have our sales license. We had a license to grow. We weren't even growing at that time. We had imported seeds. We hadn't had them phenotyped. Like we had nothing going. And um, we had to figure out like, what are we? And the like most amazing, you know, branding exercise, like what can we be? What are we from nothing? But had to come out in, you know, less than six months of being something that was going to resonate and is going to be authentic. Like... And I was seeing all of these brands coming out through Canopy. Like when I first started, no one had good branding. Like it was, you know, obviously it was bankers and miners and all of these like people who were yeah. just kind of getting the money together to kind of get out there. So people were starting to get more savvy about it. But really, like no one really stood for anything. So that to me was like also a one of the nice things about this industry was being able to be a disruptor in, in an authentic way. So. Entering the cannabis space while trying to attract women. Well, the male stoner stereotype is very well documented. I don't even know. Is there one for women? Well, I think that uh, if you'd ask the women in, in Latitude in the book that we've published, they would tell you, that, you know, you're stigmatized for being um, lazy and a bad mother, uh, not smart, not going anywhere. I think the male stereotype can be laughed at and joked about and, you know, it's sort of like it's in the zeitgeist and it's okay and acceptable, but not really if you're a woman at all. What we've also learned through our research is that it's pretty equal split between men and women who consume and the way that women consume uh, is different from the way that men consume, Um, mostly for relaxation and pain management and anxiety and uh, creativity. Also, you know, women are the ones who most likely are making the tinctures or making the edibles or doing doing things with the plant that men generally don't do. So using it in other healthful ways. When the temperate societies across North America pushed for alcohol prohibition, they cited how much trouble booze actually caused. The argument was something like, You know, men, the major breadwinners, will get paid on Friday, blow the paycheck on whiskey, none left for groceries. It was hurting families. And once prohibition passed, that was the stank left on the societal view of booze consumption. It was irresponsible. It was sinful. When prohibition was dismantled and alcohol was made legal again, the government and advertisers in tandem had to work to rebrand booze. And so, in a few decades... Nothing became more American than an ice-cold beer. Yeehaw! But let's be real, that was still for the boys. When it became socially acceptable for women to drink, you know, white wine spritzers, sophisticated cocktail parties, that's when the vice truly went legit. Something everyone was allowed to enjoy. Tobacco had a similar story. 
For a long time, it was the dominion of men. Think spittoons, hand-rolled, fingertipped, staining stink sticks. Then came cigarette holders and pre-rolled thin cigarettes in stylishly designed boxes. Virginia Slims, made to be marketed exclusively to women in the 60s, has that famous slogan, you've come a long way, baby. It was classy. A vice goes legit when you get women on board. Now it's Weed's turn. How do you feel about that, Kirsten? That's an excellent point. And I would say absolutely yes. I mean, I think it goes back to what I said about the women being the caretakers uh, and also being the ones cooking up different remedies in the kitchen and trying this plant out in lots of different ways. I mean, women have an opportunity to start a very positive narrative around cannabis, you know, even with myself, like talking to my kids about cannabis, like just completely demystifying it and then talking to other parents about it. And they're like, oh, well, we don't really smoke cannabis. So, you know, we're more drinkers and we don't really talk to our kids about cannabis. And it's like, well, this is happening. You know, we need to talk about it and make it like it's okay. So I think that I feel like we have a responsibility to usher it in really, really well uh, because we have the opportunity because we're sitting at the table today. So even with this disruption inception battle occurring inside the cannabis market, they're also actually disrupting a current industry. And uh, which industry would that be? Oh, my God, you're disrupting booze. They're very nervous. Right. I mean, look, they were the ones first movers to, into this industry because they, they know it. They've done the research. They're seeing. People want to self-medicate. They know alcohol is bad for them. Um, they've seen the effects of it. They know it's a carcinogen. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are other ways to take cannabis in a healthful way that maybe give them the benefits that they've been getting through cannabis. And they're open to trying it. So... That's very interesting to me. Obviously, I think that, you know. Now how are they fighting back? How is alcohol fighting well, back? Well, I don't I don't know if they're fighting back. I think they're trying to, they want to be in. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the government has very wisely said, like, no, we're not, we're not going to mix cannabis and alcohol together. So you're, you're getting the cannabis infused just drinks. Yeah. Um, and they're not going to be sold together. I think that's wise. So I think they would just want to stay relevant. Because really what's going to happen is you're going to have the CPGs and the big beverage companies like Pepsi coming out with CBD water. And like even from the short period of time that CBDs being talked about and understood and I mean, obviously we're in, I'm in the bubble so I could be completely, you know, misguided in this, but people want those products. And if they don't have side effects, something that they can uh, wake up the next morning and not feel terrible and, you know, they're gonna take it. Now, they won't be legal here in Canada until December, so who knows how popular they're going to be. Despite this, some are predicting that weed-infused drinks will make a bigger splash in the cannabis market here in the next few years. And Big Booze is trying to make sure of it. In July, The Verge's Amanda Chicago Lewis reported that the race to make the best-infused drink has been expensive and messy. She says huge brands are investing a lot in hopes of dominating the scene. Quote, Constellation Brands, which includes Corona and Modelo, threw down nearly $4 billion U.S. dollars, the biggest investment in the history of weed, on a 38% stake in the largest Canadian marijuana producer, Canopy Growth. End quote. So, we'll see where that goes. Look, you know how most coups work, right? 
Laying in the weeds, there are some dissatisfied citizens who want to take down the man. And slowly but surely, it builds, and one person talks to another person, and another person, and another person, and eventually, they form a militia, and the militia lights their torches, and they storm the castle, and they topple the establishment, and they behead the king, and they reign supreme. But in this case, it's been a little bit different. Yes, the legal weed industry is coming in to compete with big booze. But really? It's building its foundations on top of, you know, the weed industry. In a lot of ways, this was the government, yes, realizing that Canadians just didn't want cannabis to be illegal anymore. But I think it was also them saying, you know what? The millions of dollars that all those local weed guys are pulling in, let's make that ours. In this case, there was a group of suited up, respectable people waiting outside the fortress of the establishment. And at some point, a member of the establishment went outside, unlocked the door and said, okay, you can come on in now. Cannabis sitting there alongside booze and tobacco. As Daniel Manisha pointed out, this hasn't been the liberation activists dreamed of. And it hasn't been the smooth commercial transition business-minded Canadians like me had hoped for either. At least not yet. The advertising rules are strict, the licenses are few, and, well, the smoke has settled. There's still much to be seen socially, politically, and culturally, but I think we'll look back on 2018 as the year the coup began and the establishment reasserted its power. My only question, what's next? I'd like to thank my guests, Daniel Baer, Kirsten Gauthier, and Manisha Krishnan. This episode of The Coup was written by Julia De Laurentiis Johnson with help from Ali Graham. It was produced by Julia De Laurentiis Johnson, and it was mixed by Chandra Bullicon. Original theme music is by the great Jim Guthrie, and additional music is by the Blue Dot Sessions and Artlist. The Coup is made by Church and State Podcasts for the Rogers Frequency Podcast Network. Rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, and if you know anyone who might like it, let them know. And I'm your host and executive producer, Ron Tite. We'll see you next time on The Coup. Try to forget about the other kids and how they make us sweat. But try not to forget Four ten demonstrations? Is it four ten? Oh no. Four twenty. Four twenty. Four twenty. Four twenty. That's how uncool I am.